the teams you care about. The Patriots are absolutely a contender. They're not just in the conversation, they're in the VIP section at the party right now. The stories that matter to you. Ryan Davis is the reigning conference player of the year. Ben Shungu is the most important player to the Catamounts, bar none. This is your home for New England sports. The rest of the American League, as I told you, is not messing around. The Red Sox need to be ready to make some big moves. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show. We made it to Friday here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Full show today, all 90 minutes right up until 7 o'clock. Even though the Patriots are on the bye, we will check in with our Patriots insider, Phil Perry from NBC Sports Boston. He'll be with us in about 15 minutes right at 545. You can always be a part of the show by getting in on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Everybody, let's waste no time. Let's go. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center, locations Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Patriots are on the bye. We've actually got a show outside of Phil Perry that's largely devoid of Patriots talk today, but I do want to start with something on the Pats. There is just a new energy around this team this season, and it is apparent, it is glaring, it is easy to see. And I made this point a few weeks ago, but that point keeps being strengthened as we move along this season. And I heard Matthew Slater say something the other day that just kind of crystallized it all for me. I think adversity, whenever you face it, if you handle it the correct way, especially with others, it's going to bring you closer together. And I think our group is is really close this year. We enjoy being around one another. Uh, I really am having a lot of fun being a part of this group. And I think if you ask anyone in that locker room, they would tell you the same. So, so Slater says the team is really close, and he says he's having a lot of fun being a part of this team. And that's the point I made a few weeks ago. This Patriots team is having more fun than any Patriots team I've ever covered. I've been here for five years. I don't have 30 years of covering the Patriots, but I've been here for five years. I have been to three Super Bowls that the Patriots played in, and this team is having more fun than any of them. Okay, I got here. They went to the Super Bowl against Atlanta. So I guess I've been here five years, but maybe this is my sixth season. Is that how that would work? Let me see here. Got here for the Atlanta Super Bowl. Then they went to the Super Bowl against Philly. Then we went to the Super Bowl against the Rams. They did. Then they lost to the Titans, Brady's last year. Then Cam, now this. So this is my sixth season here. I guess we're going on year six of my time covering the Patriots. This team is having more fun than any of them, despite how successful those other teams have been. And again, this is no shot at Tom Brady. But... The differences this year and the differences between this year and the Brady years are striking, and they are right out there plain as day. Think of it like this. okay? Think about this real-world example, because a lot of us have been here. 
How many of you out there, and I know you're out there, how many of you had demanding parents academically? Your parents expected good grades. So when you would come home with a 95 on a test, it wasn't celebrated. Why? Because it was an expectation. And when you are the kid in that situation, that's tough. You're not getting a lot of credit. You're just kind of a machine that rolls along, and those results are expected. That was the Patriots under Tom Brady. They did well, of course. They accomplished a ton. It set them up for great things, but the environment was so intense, and those results were so expected that you didn't always have the best time doing it. And I understand football doesn't have to be fun. It's a job. You can get to good results in a lot of different ways, and that is all true. But under Tom Brady, I felt like success was more of a relief than a cause for celebration. There was so much pressure, and that pressure comes from Brady, and that's fine. Again, not a shot at him. Brady's at the point in his career where the only reason he is playing is to win championships. And if you're not helping him do that, then you are no good to him. So when the team goes 12-4, and four, it's expected. You are the student where we expect the 95. We're not celebrating it. We're not having fun. We're not putting the test up on the refrigerator. We're not taking you out to dinner. And when the report card comes out, you're not getting a gift to commemorate how good you did. It's just the expectation. That was the Patriots under Tom Brady. Now, look at it this way. How many of you came from demanding families academically, but there was that one class that your parents didn't expect greatness from you because it was clear that it was tough for you. For me, it was math, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Eighth grade math with Mr. Adams. When, when math started getting letters involved, X's and all that, and polynomials, I think they were called, that's when it became really hard for me. And I was good in everything else. I was smart in English. I was smart in social studies. I was good at history. I was okay in science, but I worked hard at it. But math was really hard for me. I went into the test thinking I was going to get a 75, and my parents were ready for it too. And you know what? A lot of times I brought home a 75. But on the rare occasion where I brought home the 90, the 95, well, that was like Christmas morning. Why? Because the expectation was low. My overachieving was a reason to celebrate. It became fun for me because I knew I had worked hard, I had proven people wrong, I had proven myself wrong, and I had outkicked my coverage. And that was fun. That's who the Patriots are this year. That's who they are. This team is smart. They know when they have a rookie quarterback, the expectation going in realistically is not to win the Super Bowl. They knew that. They won't say it publicly, and that's fine. But deep down, Matthew Slater knows that going into this season, the expectation was not to win the Super Bowl. It was to get better than last year, be interesting, be relevant, stub your toe, fight back, and maybe claw your way into the playoffs. He knew it. But because the Patriots have gotten a 95 when they were expected to get a 75, 
He's having a ton of fun. This team is having a ton of fun. That's that's what's different about this team. The weight of the expectations has been removed. And look, it'll come back. Maybe as early as next year, the Patriots will be expected to get back to Tom Brady level. But for right now, they are not there. Last year was still a pressure-filled year. Cam loosened the team up. Cam made it so the team could have some fun because of his big personality. But you were answering the questions. There were no fans. Tom Brady was gone. You were trying to to, to live with the, the, the wake of that departure. Last year was a tough year to have fun, and bless Cam's heart, he tried real hard to make it fun. But this year, no expectations. Rookie quarterback. AFC looked pretty good on paper. We figured, hey, they'll be lucky to get the seven spot. Now here they are, 13 weeks in, and they've got the number one seed right now in the AFC playoffs. They're the kid that is overachieving, and it's just fun for these players to be a part of because everybody had, everybody always says you're the underdog. Everybody always says, oh, they're counting us out. This team really was, and it really has been. I could have thought of at least six to seven AFC teams that we thought were better than the Patriots coming in. We thought the Chiefs would be better than them. We thought the Chargers had a chance to be better than them. We thought Cleveland was better than them. We thought that uh, Baltimore was better than them. We thought Buffalo was better than them. That's five. Tennessee we thought was better. And then there were teams that were in there, the Colts, the Raiders, Pittsburgh, They were all kind of around it. They were all kind of around it. And Houston, before we knew about Deshaun Watson, we didn't know. We thought maybe they would be better than the Patriots too. This team has massively overachieved our expectations. It's been fun for the players, and it's been really fun to see this team grow because they do like each other. They do have fun. And again, no shot at Brady. But the expectation was there, and the expectations are draining on people. The weight of the world is not on this team. They're just able to play and grow and have fun, and it's a dynamic that won't be here for very long because those expectations are going to come back. But for this year, when Matthew Slater says, I'm having so much fun, that's true. It's easy to see, and it wasn't always that way. It's the Brady Farkas Show. On WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. When we come back, Patriots are on the bye. Phil Perry of NBC Sports Boston has an outrageous idea for how the Patriots will handle the quarterback position in the future. Are any of you buying what Phil is selling? I'm going to ask him about his crazy notion. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. The biggest stories in Foxborough. Your primary goal should be finding out if Mac Jones is good. All the information from Patriots Place. Bill Belichick's going to be 69 years old this year. They want to compete. It's Football Talk Friday with Patriots insider Phil Perry on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show here on a Friday, a Football Talk Friday, but no Patriots Talk Friday today. No Pats game to preview. It feels a little empty inside. So joining me now is our Patriots insider from NBC Sports Boston, Phil Perry. Phil, first question I just got to know, what was it like, boots on the ground, 
Monday night weather-wise. You almost blew over in pregame live, I thought. I did, almost, and thank you for noticing because yeah. it was uh, it was something else out there. It was fun, honestly. It was not so devastatingly cold that, you know, it was one of those days where you really couldn't feel any of your fingers or toes after being outside for about 30 minutes. Like, I remember, I want to say it was the AFC Championship game in t- uh, 2019, so it was the 2018 season in Kansas City. Yeah. That was one of the coldest stadium experiences that I've ever experienced. And Buffalo was very cold. It was really just the force of the wind, though, that made it so different. It, it wasn't um, It wasn't so uncomfortable otherwise. It was just that wind, which obviously had a massive, massive impact in the game. They, they occasionally would get, you know, for about 10 minutes or so, either snow or some sort of wintry mix. And there were a couple uh tv hits that we did where it just felt like one side of my face was just getting (laughs) pummeled by like these little itty bitty tiny pieces of hail uh so that was good that was good it felt like um you know i went back to the car after that one like my face had just been attacked (laughs) by by fire ants or something but uh otherwise uh it was fine it was uh it was it was honestly again it was fun like the crowd was all around you that you get bill's mafia there trying to mess with the camera shot and heckling you and all that stuff It, it was a good time Here's how I looked at Monday night from a game plan perspective. It was creative, and it worked, so therefore we can't really criticize it. But at the same time, the Pats were 2 of 12 on third down. You take out the Damian Harris run, they only ran 3.5 yards a carry, and the Bills had a chance to win the game in a goal-to-go situation at the end. So it was creative, and I won't criticize it, but I'm also not ready to put that game plan in the Louvre either. Like, what do you think about it? <laughs> I don't know if the Louvre would know what to do with a football yeah. game plan. I think they'd look at that and say, what the hell is this? This isn't soccer. Oh. Um, but I would just say a couple things. Like, number one, as far as some of those more traditional stats that we're used to judging games off of, it's hard for those to really apply because, you know, third down, for instance. Well, if you're in a spot where you can't, reasonably kick a field goal or have any idea where the ball is going to go when you punt, does it not become more of a four down game in some situations? I understand the Patriots still punted plenty in that one, but you know, I, I, that's why I hesitate to look at stats like that. And even the yards per carry thing, I understand, you know, take the Damian Harris run out, their numbers obviously go down, but Brady, I will ask you, since you gave me the statistic, did you also take out all of the Mac Jones kneel downs at the end? I did not. So, okay. So, okay. I mean, they, he lost about like 12 yards on some of those because he was trying to run around and burn some clock too. So, you know, if you take those out and, you know, they lost, they, they had, they lost 10 yards rushing in the fourth quarter, which is remarkable mm-hmm. to me. So they finished through three quarters with 233 yards rushing. Wow. And then the game, you know, changes a little bit and they're trying to melt clock and, and we get all that. So that, you know, even with the Harris run through three quarters, I think they were closer to like 4.5, 4.6 yards per carry. So I just feel like it, it was, it is deserving of a lot of credit because how many coaches would actually go to those lengths, right? How many coaches would just treat it as, Oh, it's the wind. And, you know, we were in the red zone still four times and we should have done better than one for four or our average starting field position was the 40 yard line. And so we should have done, we should have scored more points than we did. That was what Sean McDermott said after the game, not really understanding how the game was so severely impacted by the win. That's at least what he made it sound like at the end. You got to throw those numbers 
out the window to a certain extent and say, how do we win this game in these conditions? It felt like he was treating them more as an inconvenience than a major, major factor in how the game should have been called. And I, I think he would have called it a little bit differently had he acknowledged that. The thing that amazed me when I came in on Tuesday was the discipline with which the Patriots stuck to that plan, though, whether we liked it or not, just the discipline to keep doing it. You know, we heard Patrick Mahomes say earlier this year, I got to do a better job at taking what they're giving me and not just getting impatient to try to make the big play. The Patriots were there. They are never impatient. They just stuck with it, even at a time where you feel like you would get, if I was playing a video game, I would get antsy to take a shot at some point, and they never did that. I thought for sure, at some point, you were going to see a real play-action pass to try to take a shot down the field with, with with the wind floated out there. I mean, they had 10 guys in the box for a lot of these snaps, Brady. It was insane what was happening, and it was an incredible show of discipline. I said after the game, talking to Tom Curran on our podcast, you know, he called it excessive, the number of runs that they called. And obviously, it was a, it was a huge number, so that's an appropriate word for that. But but I said it was it was a great show of restraint. Yeah. You know, for the same reasons you're you're enumerating, like to be able to stick with that and understand if we just don't screw this up, and they almost did with Nikhil Harry. I mean, imagine mm-hmm. if Nikhil Harry doesn't muff that punt. They they kind of you know they've got a double digit lead, which in those conditions probably feels like thirty points instead of eleven or whatever it mm-hmm. would have been. If we don't screw this up, which is what Mac Jones basically told us after the game, he said if we didn't turn it over, we knew we'd be okay. And it turns out he was right. So what's a great way not to turn it over? Hand it to your big backs and see if you can gash them on one. And they did. And that ends up being the difference in the game. Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston, Patriots Insider with us here every single Friday on WDEV right here on the Brady Farkas Show. Pats are 9-4. and four. They've won seven straight. What do they need to address here in the bye week? I would just say that if there is something they can address, it would just be to understand what their tendencies are and see if they can stay a step ahead by changing some of those up. And that can get a little bit dangerous because you don't want to get away from what's been working well for you. But, you know, I think other years, Brady, at the bye week, you would say, man, they just they've just got to get healthy or they've got to figure out this glaring issue on third down or they've got to figure out who their number two corner is going to be. The team is pretty well established on both sides of the ball. They're very balanced. I would say, you know, statistically, if you're looking at it, what's one area that they could be better at that would carry them late in the year would be red zone success. They're still more of a middle of the pack team there compared to others. But boy, they've got the best defense in the league. They've got an offense that has proven over the course of the last two weeks. If you need to throw 30 times to win, they can do that against a good defense, which they did against the Titans. If you need to run it 46 times, they can do that too. So there's not a lot of glaring issues here. It would just be to me again, okay, we run these X number of plays a lot in these specific situations. Is there anything else we can turn to to just give teams a little bit more pause? That would be that would be the number one issue for me. Like I, I do think there are some other issues with this team, Brady, like long-term, you know, uh, whether it's – against the Bills at home in Foxborough, or if they end up seeing the Chiefs in the postseason, they really haven't seen an excellent passing game in a long time. That's just the fact of the matter. They they saw the Chargers, um, you know, weeks ago when they, you know, really kind of started going on this run that they're on right now. But since then, it's been a mess in terms of who they've seen 
whether it's that quarterback or the combination of the quarterback and the receivers, like Matt Ryan's a pretty good quarterback, the rest of what he had going for him in that passing game when they saw them on Thursday night was a disaster. Yeah. So I still do have some questions as to how would they fare against Patrick Mahomes and that group. But the good thing for them is they might not have to worry about that until they're a round or two into the postseason. So, you know, even a concern like that is not a huge concern because I don't understand or I don't see anywhere on this regular season schedule where something like that is going to come back to bite them. Burt Breer said yesterday on NBC Sports Boston that Mac Jones might make $65 million a year um, in his next contract. And I don't really care about the number. I always care more about percentage of the cap that the quarterback is taking up than the number. But still, the number was startling. You know what's crazy is if you're going off percentage of the cap, and you want to look at Mahomes as the the market setting contract at that position, it actually would be a little bit more than sixty five per year. <laughs> Mahomes Mahomes is making about twenty five percent of his team's cap this year, and I understand it's a it's a COVID season impacted cap, so the cap is a little bit down. His number is way up, so you know it's it's and it's not even his number specifically this year. It's the average annual value of his contract compared to this year's cap. So it's a little bit of a wonky statistic but it just tells you how much the chiefs value him and his presence on their roster that they're willing to get dedicate that much money to the guy if you get quarterbacks making almost a quarter of your cap at a 300 million dollar cap which is what Burt was talking about yeah the league potentially getting to you're talking about 70 ish million a year i mean it's it's out of control i think to a certain extent and that's why it is important to at least have an eye on it. It's Mac Jones's first year in the league. I get it, um, but it but it is important to at least consider like what might be coming, you know? Because if you are planning on paying the guy significant, significant money in that sort of world, you got to start budgeting for that stuff right now, you know? Or you you better at least start planning for it. It's going to impact how you handle free agency this off season, next off season, until you can actually extend him. You start setting that money aside. And if you don't want to do that, well, then you better prepare yourself in some other ways. You know, might be a good idea to draft at that position. You know, it doesn't have to be a first round pick, but do what the Patriots did from 2008 to 2016, where, you know, they spent day two picks on Kevin O'Connell, Ryan Mallett, Jimmy Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett with Tom Brady on the roster and as one of the best quarterbacks in football. That was smart of them to do that. They should continue to take that kind of approach, even though they have a very young quarterback on the roster, because he could command eventually a salary so massive that even if the Patriots love him, which they do right now, they would say, oh, I don't know if that's a great plan for us long term because it's going to impact the rest of our roster, Mac. You make it sound much better today than you did the other day when I heard you say adopting the collegiate model where Bill Belichick just lets his quarterback graduate every four years and never pays him. Matt Castle ripped you for that. This sounds smarter. This is a smarter, well-said version of that. It's the same take, take. but this one sounds better. Well, just because I'm not yelling at Castle because I'm not pissed (laughs) off and out in the cold. Like, (laughs) no, it's the same take. It it is. You know, I think there's going to – look, the Browns are doing it right now. I think the Browns are smart front office. Uh, I think the Ravens are a smart front office, which is why they've kind of hesitated on this because they know Lamar Jackson, you know, he's he's a very good quarterback. Is he the kind of guy you want to commit a ton of money to and then depend on him to carry your team moving forward? I think he is, and I think the Ravens will decide that as well. I think the Browns know that Baker Mayfield is not that guy. 
And so I think they're going to be one of the first ones to look at who a guy who is essentially an average quarterback and say, you know what? We might not be able to do better right away with you, but we know we're going to be putting ourselves in a bad spot if we pay you more than what you're worth. And that's just the reality. The quarterback position is those guys get paid more than what they're worth. I don't think Castle like would even factor that into his discussion. We, you know, he's saying, well, yeah, if he if he doesn't succeed, then you don't pay him. Okay, well, that's a great thing to say, which is what he said. But what's success at that position? He's saying, well, if you go to a Super Bowl, you win Rookie of the Year. Well, all right, but Carson Wentz almost won MVP. Jared Goff took his team to a Super Bowl. Those teams are kicking themselves because they gave those guys massive, massive second contracts. I think they would have liked. I think they both would like a redo on that one. And, yeah. and you get in such a bad position that you end up, you know, paying just to get rid of those guys with draft capital or you know financially. So you got to be careful with the money that you. you I, I know you love the quarterback. Everybody loves the quarterback. I really like the quarterback. I think he's going to be really good. I don't know if he's going to be worth top of the market money. I think the Patriots probably have to feel the same way. I don't know how they could know for a fact that they're going to start doing that with him in three years. Maybe they do. But you've got to be careful at that spot because if you give too much to the wrong guy, it can set you back. Phil Perry, Pat's Insider, NBC Sports Boston, pre- and post-game live on Days of Patriots games. The next Pat's podcast had Dante Skarnecchia on recently, which was a cool interview, and then the Tom Curran Patriots Talk podcast as well. So, Phil, next week we're going to be getting ready for a big matchup with the with the Indianapolis Colts, so look forward to that, and we'll talk to you in seven days. All right, sounds good, Brady. Appreciate you. Appreciate you as well. Phil Perry. NBC Sports Boston. So, uh, yeah, that is wild. A lot of different things are wild there, right? Like the $65 million a year or more idea is wild. Again, the number of dollars doesn't matter to me as much as percentage of the cap. 25%, I I told you my biggest fear was I don't know that Mac Jones is ever going to get there. And you are going to have to pay him a lot and you're going to end up like Jared Goff in the Rams or Matthew Stafford with the Lions, or you're going to end up with like Kirk Cousins in the Vikings. Like That's always been my fear. That's why I've said the Patriots need to win while Mac Jones is on the rookie contract. That's always been my fear. Now, Phil brings up an interesting point, basically adopting a collegiate model where you, you never pay your quarterback a lot and you let him graduate, essentially, and every four to five years you're getting a new quarterback. It's a wild idea. I don't think that it would happen. We'll get a national news update from CBS News. We'll come back. I'll tell you why I don't think that that's going to happen. And then we will get into our six-pack of NFL questions. So we'll finish reacting to the Phil craziness there. Then six-pack of NFL questions. That's all coming up. On the Brady Farkas Show here on this Football Talk Friday on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. And we are always streaming on the free WDEV radio app. Remember, you can find it in the Google Play Store or in the Apple iTunes Store. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas show right here on a Friday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com full show all 90 minutes today. The show brought to you in part by pro driver training. That's pro driver training 
online at prodrivercdl.com. They are Vermont's premier truck driver training school. They can help you with all kinds of things in the professional world. Your Class A CDL, your Class B CDL, passenger and advanced skills training, coursework, real-life application of that coursework. It's excellent stuff for the next step in your career. All right, we're going to get to our six-pack of NFL questions here in a couple of minutes, but I want to wrap up on the Phil Perry point. So Phil didn't say this exact quote to us today. This is what Phil said on Monday about the Patriots, but he basically said the same thing today. If he feels as though the quarterback market has gotten so out of control that every couple of years he's going to expend a significant draft pick at that position just to protect himself from having to pay Mac Jones or anybody else $40 million a year because he just doesn't want to operate that way. I'd be fascinated to see if he takes more of a college model where you let your quarterback quote-unquote graduate and then let the younger guy eventually take over because he's cheaper. Look, I guess if anyone is willing to do it, it's Bill Belichick, but I still can't see it. Bill Belichick is going to be next year 70 years old. Does he really want to do this dance where he drafts, develops, and then wonders about a young quarterback as he's into his mid-70s? But by the time they'd let Mac Jones go and, quote, graduate, Bill Belichick would be like 74 years old or 73 years old. At 73, does he really want to be playing with a rookie quarterback that you might think is good? but you just don't know is good? Or I guess maybe he's saying, you know, Phil is saying draft a quarterback, you know, a few years before you need him to play. So fine, you draft a guy who might be in his second or third year, but has never really stepped on the field other than the preseason. I don't think that Bill Belichick wants to do that dance into his mid-70s. If you're coaching in your mid-70s, don't you want some kind of sure thing? I do think that Bill Belichick likes building. I do think he likes creating. But do you want to do that into your mid-70s? Do you want to do – I mean, Phil's making it sound like Belichick's got, you know, 15 years left and he can do this thing three or four times. I don't think that that's the case. I don't think Bill Belichick is going to be coaching that much longer. I think Bill Belichick wants to win the Super Bowl with Mac Jones, and if he does – I think there's a very good chance he'll walk away. If he gets, if they don't win the Super Bowl with Mac Jones, I could see him, you know, walking away at the end of Mac's deal and leaving the questions like Phil's talking about up to somebody else. I don't think that Bill Belichick wants to be doing this quarterback carousel into his mid seventies. I mean, and and also. I think that Bill Belichick wants to leave this team to his son, Steve, who's basically the defensive coordinator right now. I think he wants to leave Steve Belichick in a good spot. And while you could argue that a blank slate is nice, and I can tell you that a rookie salary is nice, if he can leave him with an established quarterback and Mac Jones ends up being great, I think he would rather leave him that than leave him nothing. Because you've seen what blank slates do around the NFL. A lot of times, it doesn't work out. It's hard to find guys, really great guys at the quarterback position. And if Mac Jones is great and they want to pay him, they have to pay him $65 million a year, I think Bill Belichick would rather leave his kid, the team, in a good situation with that than 
no, you know, then the, the no quarterback who you are just wondering about. So it is an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea philosophically for all front offices. I don't think with the Patriots, with Robert Kraft's age and with Bill Belichick's age, I don't think they want to do what they're doing today again. I, I, I don't think they want to do that. It's hitting right now. It could very easily look like it's looking for the Jets. It could very easily look like it looked for Cincinnati last year. It could very easily look like it's looking for you know Trey Lance, who's not even good enough to be on the field right now. Justin Fields struggled at times, a lot of times in Chicago. I don't think the Patriots and Bill Belichick want to do this when Robert Kraft's in his late 80s and Bill Belichick's in his mid-70s. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. All right, no Patriots game, so we've got our six-pack of NFL questions. Non-Patriot stuff today. Everybody, fire up the music. Hard to believe it, week 14. I remember when we were just talking about Mac Jones and Cam Newton in August like it was nothing. I remember that like it was nothing. Like, it feels like it was yesterday. Hard to believe. Hard to believe. I remember I was in New Hampshire on vacation in August, helping my brother move into his new place. And there was the, the notice that Cam Newton had missed, you know, was going to miss time with the, with the vaccination thing, and he had broken protocol and all that. That was in August. That feels like yesterday to me. And here we are, week number 14. Big voice guy, question number one. The best game of the NFL weekend is... Yeah, our six-pack of NFL questions kicks off right here. Rams at Cardinals. It's Monday night football. This is the best game of the NFL weekend, and it's one of the most meaningful games of the NFL weekend. The Cardinals are 10-2. They are currently the top seed in the NFC playoff picture. They're trying to hold off the Packers and a slew of others for the number one seed, but they're also trying to hold off the Los Angeles Rams in the division. The Rams are 8-4 right now in the NFC West. A win for Los Angeles would move them to just one game out of first place in that division. We know how important winning your division is because it allows you a home game at least one in the playoffs. So the Cardinals need this game for the division. They need this game for the number one seed. The Rams need this game to stay in the division or at least keep their seeding going in the direction they want to. The Rams were a Super Bowl favorite just a couple weeks ago. They've lost three of four since. They got right last week against Jacksonville, but the pressure is on them. Like, listen to Keyshawn Johnson earlier this week on ESPN. Anything Come other on. than going to the Super Bowl, it was a complete failure in no. experiment. They traded two number one picks, their future. Mm -hmm. They gave up a second round or two, I believe, Max and Jay. Yeah, yep. you're right. They gave up a quarterback. No, that two took... firsts and a third, I want to okay, say. Okay, two yeah. firsts. I said second, yeah, so two yeah, yeah. firsts and a third. They gave up a $100 million quarterback that took them to the Super Bowl as part of a team. Who they drafted first. Who they drafted first overall. They gotta go into the Super Bowl. I, I, Anything I short of the Super Bowl right, is wait, a complete Jay, what do you say? failure. Yeah, I think it's a failure too. The pressure is on the Rams. They do need to get to the Super Bowl. I had them as my Super Bowl champion before the season even started. But look at what they've done. The money they've doled out. The draft picks they've given up. Matthew Stafford. Jalen Ramsey. Uh, the money to Cooper Cup. The previous money to Goff. The previous money to Todd Gurley that's got them in cap hell all the time. Von Miller, who they traded for. The Rams 
are built to win and win now. They need to be able to do it. And they need to be able to beat a Cardinals team that is good. We didn't think that they were this good, though. We did not. The Cardinals, I saw somebody say we thought the Cardinals were a last-place team heading into this year. And in that division, it was very plausible they would be a last-place team. And here they are right now, first place in the NFC. This game has huge implications. Both these teams are going to the playoffs, but how they're getting there is going to be important. Cardinals may have home field. Rams are trying to stay alive in the division. Big boy sky number two. The game that intrigues us most is... Game that intrigues me most is the Ravens at the Browns. The Ravens are eight and four. The Browns are six and six. I just can't quit caring about the Browns. I find them fascinating. My dad is a Browns fan. I've watched every single Browns game this year. Usually it's on my tablet on the third screen in my apartment, but I am watching every Browns game every year. This game is fascinating for a couple of different reasons. One, the Ravens are coming off a very tough loss last week against Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh team we don't think is very good. And showed us last night, they got down 29 to nothing, that we still don't think is very good. So the Ravens are coming off a loss against Pittsburgh. They lost in the process the number one seed in the AFC to the Patriots. They want to stay in that battle, one, for their division title, two, for the AFC top spot as well. They want to try to get the top spot in the AFC. They need this win. Cleveland needs this win immensely. They're 6-6. Six six. They're coming off the bye week. They lost to Baltimore the last time they played this season. Cleveland right now has a 22% chance to make the playoffs. If they win this game, it goes to 35. If they lose this game, it goes down to 7. So it's, a, it's slim either way for Cleveland, but they need this game. Baltimore needs this game. And you throw in another added layer that these teams played just two weeks ago. The Browns' last game was the Ravens. How do you handle things from a game plan standpoint when you've just seen the opponent? Lamar Jackson threw four picks in that game. Baker Mayfield was awful in that game. Both of them have pressure on them. They're both playing for a contract. They're both trying to get to the playoffs. Lamar's trying to win the division. He's trying to prove he can win the big one. And then there's the question of how healthy is Baker Mayfield. He's playing through a lot of stuff. I applaud him for what he's playing through. Torn labrum, bad foot, uh, bad foot, bad knee. He's he's playing through a lot of stuff. I give him credit for that. But this one of them is going to have to step up here in this game. The Browns are actually favored. The Browns are at home. The Ravens got another injury where Marlon Humphrey now is out for the year. Browns need to win this game. The Browns are have only been favored four times against the Ravens in their last 45 matchups. They're one in three in those times. They've got to win this game. Question number three. The Bar Rescue Game of the Week is? Bar Rescue Game of the Week, the worst game of the weekend. I really gave strong consideration to uh, Jaguars and Titans. I decided to go with the Seahawks at the Texans. This game, anytime I do this segment, I look for who are the Texans playing, who are the Jaguars playing, and who are the Jets playing. Those are the teams that I look for. Today, I landed on the Texans. The Texans are 2-10. They are horrific. They played good against the Patriots for the first half, and I don't know that they've played good the rest of the season. 2-10. They were just shut out by the Colts, 31-0. Davis Mills is starting at quarterback. Tyrod Taylor's hurt again. Mills is 0-6 as a starter this season. That's who 
you'd be watching if you watch this game. You should not watch this game. The Seahawks, by the way, they're also bad. They're four and eight. They have like a two percent chance to make the playoffs, and they only have that because the bottom of the NFC is so lackluster. I'm interested to see how Russell Wilson plays as he continues to get healthy from his finger injury. He looked better last week. I'm interested if the Seahawks can put together a late season run that would make Russell Wilson want to stay for the long term. But this team doesn't have much else interesting to it. The idea of them making a run, though, is not completely far-fetched. Houston this week, that'd be 5-8. and eight. They play Detroit, that could be 6-8. and eight. They play the Bears, that could be 7-8. and eight. And then they've got one more each against the Rams and Cardinals. Those will be tough. There's a chance that the Seahawks can make this end of season respectable. Maybe even get to 8-9. Heck, if they went 5-0, and oh, they'd go 9-8. and eight. I don't think that's possible. So there's mild interest on the Seahawks' side, but they're banged up. Adrian Peterson's not going to play. Jamal Adams is out for the season. So I got Davis Mills. I'm out on him. I got Russell Wilson, who I'm interested in, and I got DK Metcalf's athleticism. Beyond that, this game is pretty much a total snoozer. I'll be watching it because I'm a Seahawks fan, but it will be the worst game of the NFL weekend in terms of things you could watch. Titans and, and, and Jags, that's ugly too. At least there is the number one pick in the draft in Trevor Lawrence. There's nothing else really in that game, but at least the number one pick and the Urban Meyer stuff, kind of interesting there. The player we want to watch most this week is... Yeah, Baker Mayfield. I already talked about it up top there. How does he look after the Browns' bye week? How healthy is he? I appreciate that he's a gamer. I know he wants to be out there. He wants to be out there with his team. He wants to lift Cleveland up. He wants to make his money. He wants to prove he's good enough to get paid. But we've got to see how healthy he is. The Ravens are beat up. Again, the Browns need a big performance, and they need Baker Mayfield to be a part of it. A loss here, I said it gets him down to a 7% chance to make the playoffs. That's effectively season over. There's just too many teams jumbled up in the wild card race. Chargers, Bengals, Raiders, Colts, Bills, Dolphins, Steelers. That's just the wild card race. There's too many teams bunched up there. Baker Mayfield, how do you respond today or Sunday? How healthy are you? Can you beat your rival? Can you beat at home? Can you beat them when you're the favorite? And can you keep your season alive? 35% is a much better chance than 7%. That's the difference in the playoffs between win and loss. And the Browns, was gonna, they're, they're going to play on Christmas Day against the Packers. They've got a Monday night football game against the Steelers. They're going to see Cincy again, I believe. They've got a hard end-of-season schedule. They need to win tomorrow to make any of that hard-season schedule worth paying attention to. The player we That's not the right one. That's the one we already had. So, uh, guys, where's the uh, most pressure of the NFL week? Here we go. The player with the most pressure this week is... That's Josh Allen, baby. That is Josh Allen. Baker Mayfield has pressure, as I just outlined. Josh Allen does too. Now, he's already got the money. He's already got the job security that Mayfield is fighting for. But now, Josh Allen's in a different less, a different level of pressure. He's trying to justify that franchise investment in him. The Bills were supposed to win this division, the AFC East. They were supposed to maybe win the AFC, and they were supposed to maybe win the Super Bowl. And now... They are 7-5 and five and may miss the playoffs entirely. Josh Allen, just he's coming off a season-low quarterback ranking rating in that game on Monday night against the uh, Patriots of 20.4, so season-low there. He just lost at home 
to Tom Brady's successor. Now he gets to play Brady and the Bucks himself. He's got to find a way to be the Josh Allen of last year and get his team rolling at the right time. The Bills have all the pieces. They've got to be able to put it together. And when I've got a guy who I'm investing more than $200 million in, he's got to be the guy who puts it together. Be the guy of last year, Josh Allen. Be the guy that people thought that you were when they paid you that sum of money and when they made that commitment to you. You just lost it home to Tom Brady's understudy. Now you got to go on the road and try to beat Tom Brady himself. Good luck with that. The most amazing NFL stat of the weekend is... Yeah, the most amazing NFL stat of the week is just... This is just crazy. So this is in honor of Aaron Rodgers taking on the Bears again. You look at three quarterbacks who are active, how they have dominated a single opponent since 19... Since, or since they've dominated a single opponent. The best win percentage against a single opponent since the 1950s is three modern-day quarterbacks. Tom Brady against the Bills is 32-3. and He could go 33-3 and with a win this weekend. Ben Roethlisberger against the Browns is 24-3-1, and and Aaron Rodgers against the Bears is 22-5. and Aye. These quarterbacks are great or have been great. I get it. But an NFL team's got to be able to offer up more resistance than that. I mean, the Bills, 3-32 lifetime against Brady. The Browns, 3-24-1 lifetime against Roethlisberger. And the Bears, 5-22 lifetime against Rodgers. Yikes. That is an amazing NFL stat. That's our six-pack of NFL questions. We do that every single Friday here on a Football Talk Friday on the Brady Farkas Show. On WDEV, we also do this every single day. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Mac Jones. Good Lord. Mel Kuyper's got to slow down on this. Mac Jones ain't going to work, folks. It's not going to work. He's got to come to terms with it. It's not going to work. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race. And I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Who's Saying What brought to you by Vermont Laser Wash, which is Central Vermont's home of unlimited car washes that begins at only $20 a month. You think about giving somebody a gift this holiday season, I would think that would be right at the top of somebody's list. $20 a month, they get unlimited car washes. That is pretty awesome. And heck, if you want a free car wash for my listeners... Just text the word Vermont to the number 30 and then 400. 30, 400. Text the word Vermont. You'll get a free car wash. You know, I told you yesterday that it's now the MLB lockout, right? There's not a ton to talk about. But every now and then, we're going to get a relevant piece of audio to react to. We get one of those today. This comes from John Tomasi of NBC Sports Boston, who was talking about how Red Sox fans should feel about high and blue. So should we give Bloom the benefit of the doubt when it comes to putting a championship team on the field? I'd say yes. His knack for finding diamonds in the rough gave us a pretty great playoff run in 2021. So even if fans don't always love his moves in the moment, big picture, their team is in the right hands. I totally agree. I've been telling you this for months. Chaim Bloom took a team in the Red Sox who was among the worst in the COVID shortened 2020, one of the worst in baseball, and remade it in one season. He had to strip down the 2020 team. 
they they wanted him to clear payroll. He had to get rid of Mookie Betts. He also got rid of David Price. Chris Sale had Tommy John surgery. There was a lot of bad that happened. Alex Cora, you know, had to get let go. A lot of bad snowballed on top of itself in the 2020 COVID season. In one season, Hyam Bloom went from nearly worst in baseball to two games away from the World Series. Like, what more can you ask for? That's all you can ask for. That's the most you can ask for. The ability to turn it around quickly. He, we asked him to rebuild a farm system. He's already really worked to address that, an infusion of talent, whether it be the two kids they just got from Milwaukee, Alex Benellis or David Hamilton, the players they got from the Dodgers in the Mookie trade, the trade that brought Nick Pavetta and Connor Seabald in from Philadelphia, getting Garrett Whitlock, uh, Wenkowski, who they got from in the Benintendi deal. So he's taken a farm system that was in the bottom third of the league, and he's put it into right around like 10th, I think I saw. That's a pretty remarkable turnaround in 24 months. And then we also asked this team to win, and they went to the ALCS and won, the, won more than 90 games. So where are the people that have a problem with Hyam Bloom? He's found those diamonds in the rough, to Tomasi's point. Whitlock, Arroyo, Kevin Ploiecki, uh, Adovino, who he plucked off the street, Sawamura, all guys who contributed. Like, what, you don't like Garrett Richards and Martin Perez? Well, last offseason we were clamoring for him to, hey, just bring in veterans who could be bounce-back guys, who you might be able to trade and won't block any young pitchers you have coming. That's exactly what he did. It just so happens the team performed way better than it was supposed to, so Richards and Perez looked bad. But if the team had been what it was supposed to, those would be the exact kind of guys that they should have brought in. Forever, it was in Bill We Trust. We should hand that to Hyam Bloom as well. With the Patriots, it's in Bill We Trust. Well, let's hand that to Hyam Bloom also. The offseason right now is incomplete. I don't love Michael Waka, Rich Hill, James Paxton. They're not enough for me. But we have to allow Bloom to play out the totality of the offseason. I'm putting my trust in him. The definitive answer will be made at the end of the offseason. By the way, real quick, this is one of my biggest pet peeves in all of sports. It's this immediate reaction to or desire to figure out who won a trade. So Tomasi, ironically enough, who I just played, he wrote an article today in NBC Sports Boston. He said, who won the Mookie Betts trade, the Red Sox or the Dodgers? What if neither of them won it? Really? We're really going to do that? First and foremost, they can both win. Okay? They can both win as far as I'm concerned. And I always use this example. The Red Sox traded... Yoan Moncada, Michael Kopech to the White Sox, they got Chris Sale. Well, the Red Sox won the World Series, so boom, that justifies their end of the trade. And in Moncada and Kopech, they got a this year a dynamic bullpen arm in Kopech, and now he's going to be a starter, I think. And then in Moncada, they're getting an all-star caliber player every year who they've got locked up under contract. Both those teams, as far as I'm concerned, won. Red Sox won the World Series, that justifies their end of it. White Sox got two franchise players, two cornerstone players. That justifies their end of it. As for the Mookie Betts trade, the Dodgers won the World Series in 2020. Yes, it was the COVID season. Yes, it was the shortened season. Nobody cares. No one's putting an asterisk by it. Dodgers won the World Series with Mookie Betts. At him, with him at the top of their lineup, 
playing great defense. That, I would say, justifies their end of it. That's a win. As for the Red Sox side of things, we don't know yet. We just don't know yet. The players they got might be good. And if they're good, like in the White Sox case, then that'll justify their end of it. And by the way, the Red Sox got to the ALCS this year. They got to the ALCS. Same as the Dodgers. So, well, this team misses Mookie Betts, no doubt. And they can't replace what Mookie Betts did. They also found a way to go to the exact same level in the playoffs as he did. So, let's let's not do this. Dodgers are good, as far as I'm concerned, with the trade. Now, if you think they made a mistake signing him, that's a different conversation. But the trade is justified. They won the World Series. As for the Red Sox, they made it just as far as Betts did this year. And those players need a chance to uh, to ripen there and see how good they are. All right. This is Brady Farkas' show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. You know, we're a half hour away from UVM men's basketball tipping off against Brown for the second game of the Rhode Island trip. Former Catamount TJ Sorrentine is an assistant coach on that Brown bench. He's in a very interesting situation, a very precarious position. What would you do if you were TJ Sorrentine? We'll go through the options. That's next on WDEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Dinner Jazz with John Wilson comes up about a half hour from now, so uh, look forward to having him on this, uh, on this Friday. UVM men's basketball taking on Brown tonight in a unique game down in Rhode Island. This Brown team is good, by the way. Brown 7-4, UVM is 6-4, and four, and Brown only lost to North Carolina by 7. They only lost to Colorado with the Pac-12 by 2, so they can certainly play. But even more than the game, I'm more interested in this matchup because of TJ Sorrentine. He's our guy, right? He's our guy. If you're a UVM fan, TJ Sorrentine is one of your guys. He was a star for the Catamounts. Coach Brendan loves him. I'd love to hear Coach Brennan talk about him. He hit the biggest shot in program history. He's the associate head coach at Brown, and I didn't realize this. He has been at Brown now for 14 years. This is his 14th year on the Brown bench. He even survived through a coaching change at Brown. Usually a new guy comes in and he gets rid of everybody that was there previously. Well, TJ Sorrentine's been there under two different head coaches. So that's a long time on the bench in one spot. We know that TJ Sorrentine wants to be a head coach. He told us that this summer. We had TJ Sorrentine on on August 13th. He told us as he he was interviewing for the Central Connecticut State head coaching job. August 13th, this is what TJ Sorrentine told us. And I wanted the job. Yeah, I I put everything I had into it. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, to lead your program is is a special thing. It's, uh, it's, there's only so, so many of them. out there and uh it's something you have to want to do um and and it's something i do want to do at some point so sorrentine says he wants to be a head coach well yesterday we had kevin sweeney of sports illustrated on he spoke with us about kind of what is next for sorrentine and how he's perceived 
when you're in a spot like like TJ's been in for for a certain for a certain length of time is what is the next step? Is it, it's going to be hard to get a, a mid-major coaching job, right? Central County State is about as low as you can go. He couldn't get that job. You know, he keep trying and he'll have an opportunity to get into those mix. But if you look at a division two head coaching job, we've seen some guys jump from there and have success in a division one, or do you try to move up and, and get onto a bigger bench, an A-10 bench, a, a high major bench and be an assistant there? So my question for the audience is this, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802 585 3026. What would you do if you were TJ Sorrentine? What would your next move be? You could stay at Brown. That's one. Two, to Kevin's point, you could maybe look for a job, a head job at the Division II rank. And three, you could try to move up and become a higher level assistant. We've seen guys that we know do each each of these options. Okay, Eric Eaton the head basketball coach at St. Michael's, Division II, he came from Iona. He had been an assistant at the D1 level, had been part of programs that went to the NCAA tournament. He decided to come down to Division II and be the head coach at St. Michael's. So there's one example. Kyle Saplicki at UVM, associate head coach for a number of years, played at UVM, TJ Sorrentine's teammate. He left UVM and went up to the ACC and became an assistant at Pitt. So we've seen different coaches with a lot of D1 experience go in completely opposite directions. If you were TJ Sorrentine, what would you do? It's a fascinating question about balancing growth and career goals and how you achieve those goals. And I haven't spoken to TJ Sorrentine since that August 13th. So I have no knowledge of what he's thinking now. I can only tell you what I would think and what I would do. If I were TJ Sorrentine, I would continue to put my name in the ring for Division I jobs like he did. But I would also be very open to the idea of taking a Division II head job. Yes, I'd want the D1 job. If another one became available, especially in this region, I'd want it. But if it didn't, I'd be very open to the idea of a Division II head job, even though it's a, quote, step back. You want to run your own program. It's that simple. He's been grinding for 14 years as an assistant and as an associate coach. You've kind of done all you can do there. You've learned the ins and outs. You've recruited. You've learned how scheduling works and booster clubs and all of it. You've learned it all. Now you want to go and apply what you've learned. And you want to make the rules instead of following somebody else's rules. And if that is, if you can do that at Division Two, then so be it. You get a chance to run your own program, and there is nothing like that. I think about my own career. I have wanted for a long time to have my own show. This was my goal. I wanted a show with my name on it. And that might sound selfish, and that might sound conceited, but I think if anybody in media tells you differently, they're lying to you. We all want this. So I have wanted this for a long time. When I got to Albany, New York, when I started in Albany, I wanted my own show instantly. And of course, I didn't get it. I got a Saturday morning show with my name on it for one hour. I was thrilled to death. When I came to Burlington, I moved up. The show didn't have my name on it. I was just one of three pieces to it. 
I always wanted my next move to be a place where I had a show and I could do the show the way that I wanted to and everything fell on me, not where it's only me. If I had a co-host here, I'd love it and welcome them in with open arms, but I want the ability to run the show the way I see fit, not as part of somebody else's plan. So I've wanted that forever. I've had chances in my career to move upwards in market size, to be a producer, to be a programmer, to be an executive producer. I've been offered jobs doing that stuff, and I turned them all down because I wanted this. And if I couldn't get this at those places, I wasn't going to go. So just being at a bigger spot isn't necessarily better if it doesn't offer you what you want. I understand that Waterbury, Vermont, that Vermont in general, is, quote, smaller market than some people would think. But I get a chance to do the show the way I want to do. And if I can't do it at a bigger place, then I wasn't interested in going to a lot of those places. So if I were TJ Sorrentine and the Division Two job, but the head job became available, I would look long and hard at that before I just moved and floated up the Division One assistant ranks. Because if TJ Sorrentine moves up, like Kyle Saplicki, let's let's stay with that example. He was at UVM for a number of years. Now he goes to Pitt. You think he's staying at Pitt forever? No. He's moving again. He's either going to move up another time and become another assistant or maybe get a head job higher up, or he's going to step back down. There's other moves on the chessboard there for Kyle Saplicki. TJ Sorrentine might not want all of those moves. He might just want to get to a place and be there and root himself there and establish himself. And I don't begrudge anybody for choosing any path. Morgan Valley who is now the assistant women's basketball coach at UConn, she was, she's had like 10 jobs in 10 years. She's from South Burlington. She played, uh, yeah, she's from South Burlington. She went to Rice. She's had like, she had like 10 jobs in 10 years. As I'm recalling, she was in, uh, you know, Towson and she was in Boston University, maybe, and Holy Cross and, Washington and Arizona, and then she got the head job at Hartford, and now she's at UConn as an assistant. I I mean, kudos to you if you want to do that, but if I'm TJ Sorrentine and I didn't have to do that, I'd strongly consider not doing that. So it's a uh, – and TJ Sorrentine has young kids. That plays into it also. You talk about disrupting your family life and kids' friends and school years, etc. Maybe you don't want to do that four times. Maybe you want to do it just once. It's the Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Isaac in Burlington on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line says, TJ was a pleasure to watch play. One of the greats to ever do it for UVM. I hope he gets wherever he wants to get. Certainly was one of the greats. Um, I love listening to Tom Brennan talk about him. Just his growth as a player, as a person while he was here. It's a great story because TJ Sorrentine doesn't sound like he was a finished product when he got to UVM. It sounds like there was a lot of growth and a little hard-headed at times, 
But the way they talk about each other, there's a lot of love there. I love listening to Brennan talk about TJ Sorrentine. I wish him success also. Whatever he wants, I hope he gets. Nestor from Waitsfield. Brady, I was at Patrick Gym the night TJ Sorrentine got his number retired a few years ago. That was awesome. Yeah, that was a special night. That was an exhibition game in 2019. Okay, that was an exhibition game in 2019. Brown came up to Patrick Jim to play UVM, and TJ Sorrentine and Taylor Coppenrath got their numbers retired. The thing I remember most about that weekend is I was at the other place at the time, but we had on Gus Johnson. Okay, we had on Gus Johnson on that show. Gus Johnson is the guy who made the call, the Sorrentine from the parking lot, and we had him on to talk right before the he, the ceremony was on a Saturday night. Gus came on with us on Friday, and he gave us 15 minutes just giving us his recollection of that moment, of that game, of Sorrentine. It was amazing. It was amazing to talk to Gus Johnson. We have the Sorrentine shot, 05 against Syracuse. I don't know, though. Is this the Gus call? Let me tell you once again, comes down to fundamentals. Oh, my goodness! Sorrentine hit that one from the parking lot. And Vermont has a 59-55 lead. Yeah, it was Gus Johnson. So that was Gus against uh, Syracuse for UVM 05 back in Worcester in the uh, in the NCAA tournament, the game that UVM won. So uh, amazing stuff. I loved having Gus on. I love talking to TJ. And I'm rooting for UVM tonight, but I hope that TJ and his team at Brown have a great time because TJ's always been gracious with his time. I think it's very, very cool. Uh, what he's given me as a radio host and what he's given shows I've been a part of. He's always been generous with his time. Uh, let's see here. A couple things that I want to do. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about Demarius Thomas, a life gone too soon. And a guy who maybe you don't remember spent a little bit of time with the Patriots. We'll talk about DT number 88. That's next on DEB. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Tragic news last night. Demarius Thomas, former NFL wide receiver, died at the age of 33 at his home in Georgia. Adam Schefter last night on ESPN reported that it looked like it was a medical event and uh, his family thinks he suffered a seizure. Um, 33 years old, Demarius Thomas had an unbelievable career. He was drafted in the first round, the same first round as Tim Tebow for the Broncos. He came in the league at 23, came out of Georgia Tech, out of a place where they never passed the ball and became one of the best wide receivers in football. I found that ironic that Calvin Johnson and and Demarius Thomas, two receivers from Georgia Tech, became one of the two of the all-time greats. They never passed. It was a triple option team. Demarius Thomas, 2010 to 2019 was his career. He had 143 games under his belt. He had 724 receptions, nearly 10,000 yards. He had nearly 65 touchdowns. He's the second-best wide receiver in Denver Broncos history behind only Rod Smith when you look at the statistics. 33 years old. He had 184 t- 
targets in 2014. That was a Peyton Manning year. 184 targets. He had 111 receptions that season. He never once had a yards per reception under 10. He was an amazing talent. Physical, fast, and everything he did on the field was apparently dwarfed by what he did off of it. I've never met Demarius Thomas. I've never interviewed Demarius Thomas. All I've seen today, though, are tributes to Demarius Thomas, talking about his ability as a player, but also his ability as a person and how he treated others, did a lot of work with charities, kids. He was reportedly the first one to always go to, uh, to, to teammates' charity events. Seemed like a great guy, and he made an impact here in Foxborough. Remember, he was in New England in 2019 for a couple of weeks during training camp. We thought he was going to make the team. He scored, I want to say, two touchdowns against the Giants in the regular season finale, in two thousand or in the preseason finale, rather, in 2019. He didn't end up making the team. And then that was the last year of Brady, and they had Antonio Brown and Josh Gordon and all that. So there was they were kind of a mess at wide receiver. It's part of the reason why Demarius Thomas was in here in the first place. But Tom Brady, Julian Edelman, Devin McCourty, they all – posted tributes to Demarius Thomas and said, like, hey, we weren't around each other long, but you made an impact here. If you go on his football reference page right now, he's in a Patriots uniform. He wasn't. He never played a regular season game for the Pats in 2019. He ended up with the, uh, with the Jets um, for the season. He ended up playing 10, uh, 11 games for the Jets, 10 games that he started, had 36 catches and a touchdown. But he was just a great player. And when you look at those Broncos teams, especially the ones that went to the Super Bowl, specifically the one that they went to the Super Bowl against Seattle. So remember, Seattle beat them. They blew them out 43-8. to But Eric Decker and and Demarius Thomas, you know, they were called Black and Decker. That was their nickname. Maybe Decker wasn't on that team. Actually, I got to look now. The 2012 Denver Broncos, uh, let's see. Well, I guess it would have been the 2013 Denver Broncos, rather. I don't know that Eric Decker was on that team. We're looking it up now. I I don't think he was. Oh, he was on that team. Yes, Eric Decker was on that team, as was Wes Welker, of course. So that was, I mean, man, Thomas, Decker, Welker, Julius Thomas, the big tight end, no Sean Moreno, Monte, Monte Ball. That was a prolific offense. That was a team that uh, averaged, I mean, <laughs> an unbelievable amount of yards per game and points per game. So Demarius Thomas, dead at the age of 33, a loss for the NFL community, a loss for sports, a loss for people. As I get older, I hate hearing about people about my age that shouldn't be gone, that are now gone. And the playoff we'll always remember Demarius Thomas for is the Tim Tebow play, right? The playoffs in, I mean, what year was this? Had to have been close to his rookie season. I mean, Tebow was the quarterback here. Josh McDaniels was the head coach even. So this was in 2011, I believe, the 2011 season. Yeah, it was. Uh, Demarius Thomas caught the touchdown pass from Tim Tebow in overtime against the Steelers' first round of the playoffs. The Broncos have been in three overtime games this year. They won them all. Got him. Got him at the 40. It's Thomas at the 50. Stiffer got him free to the 30, to the 20. Thomas to the 10. Denver's going on the New England. They win it on the first play of overtime. And the Patriots would go on to win that game against the Broncos 45-10, to 10, but it doesn't matter. Demarius Thomas, a great career, 
an even better person, reportedly. So, dead at the age of 33. That'll do it for us here this week on the Brady Farkas Show. we got high school basketball a bunch next week. we got all kinds of impacted shows. Uh, we'll roll with the punches. Dinner Jazz is next on DEV.